All right, welcome everybody. I'm Philip J. Watt. This is Dissect Media, and I have the extreme pleasure of providing an interview with Ellen Brown once again. I've interviewed Ellen a couple of times before. She's one of my favorite guests on the podcast because one of my most passionate um, aspects of my activism or my service is to really bring out the issue around money and banking. It is so integral to our society in terms of how it's operationalized as well as how, as how it's controlled. And we have been within a private banking and a, a, a centralization of money and banking for a long, long time. And it used to be the opposite. We used to have public banking. We used to have a system where the money and banking system was designed to enrich the people, the communities, not designed to enrich those in the private market who have control over the money supply and banking. So it's a big, big issue that we need to move forward and, and, and together, both on the left and right. This is an issue that, that the right really needs to start considering a lot, lot more. And I know the left have got their issues and, and whatnot, but ultimately we ask, the narrative is changing. The narrative is changing is that we can have monetary sovereignty in terms of each nation has the a sovereign money supply. And the narrative is also changing in the fact that without too much, with too much private and not enough public, we get corporatism. And with too much public and not enough private, we get communism. So just like in life in general, we've got to have a balance in our lives in terms of how playful and how serious we are or whatever it may be, our social system needs a balance as well. That's where the narrative is. We are rising above this left and right split on many, many different levels and realising there's some good on the right and some good on the left and the rest of it's just all bullshit. We need to chuck it out. So that's where we are right now. And Ellen Brown is the go-to woman, the go-to person when it comes to pub public, bank, uh, public banking. Um, she wrote The Public Bank Solution in 2013. She wrote The Web of Debt, I think about three or four years earlier than that. She's written a book way back in the day on forbidden medicine, which I'm interested in to touch on a little bit later. But Ellen has really um, laid out great plans and great, um, and just the theory and the ideas around what public banking means and how we might be able to implement it into our future. So welcome back to the podcast, Ellen. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks, Phil. So let's start off with something. Um, let's just go straight to the core. Uh, this interview is going to be um, seen by a lot of Australians who don't really understand this stuff. And so what, we, what I want to do is start off with what is money? Who creates it? Is it created out of nothing? As the Bank of England said in 2014 in their paper. Um, and we'll go from there. Right. According to the Bank of England in 2014, 97% uh, of the UK money supply, and it's probably about 95% of the circulating money supply in the US, is created by banks when they make loans. So the Bank of England said, contrary to popular belief, banks are not merely intermediaries that lend money out and or that take in money as deposits and then lend it out again. They actually create money uh, in the process of, of making loans. The problem is, as I see it, is that the bank creates the principal, but it doesn't create the interest. So money is created as a loan, it's paid off, or it's extinguished when the loan is paid off. But the interest is not created in the original loan, so it has to be acquired somewhere. It, 
typically by more debt. Somebody somewhere has to go into debt. So that works fine as long as you can keep building this big debt bubble. But at some point, everybody's in debt, which is where we are now pretty much. Governments, businesses, individuals, everybody, all those debt levels are higher than they've ever been. When credit card debt in the U.S. is higher than it's ever been. Um, car debt, auto, auto debt's higher than it's ever been. Government debt, obviously, everywhere is higher than it's ever been. So if everybody's in debt, who's, who are they in debt to? Obviously, to the banks that created this money. And the banks basically get off scot-free. The governments see it as their duty to make sure that the banks can correct collect, including the interest, because they're also interlocked, that if you let them go down, then the, everybody goes down, the government goes down. So it, it's a bad model that we have propped up from various ways, but what we really need to do is redo the model, it seems to me. And that really just comes down to policy, isn't it? So what, what I might do is I'll just reiterate for those listening. When you get a mortgage or a credit card debt or get a loan, that money is new money out of nowhere. It wasn't transferred from another account. They just punched numbers into a into a uh, accounting spreadsheet on a computer, essentially. Most of the money supply is just digital numbers on a bloody spread, uh, a spreadsheet. When you pay that money back, that money gets wiped again. So that money no longer exists, but guess who gets to keep the interest? Well, the people, the organizations who created the money out of nothing. Now, this is the question. Why are private, centralized, Banking cartels, both on an international scale and also within Australia, for example, in Australia, the big four are mostly owned by foreign shareholders and foreign stakeholders and the foreign banks. So most of this interest that comes out of money, creating money out of nothing, nicks off overseas. So why are we not, why do we not have public banking models like we used to? And this is, the, this is where we're going to get to with Ellen on this next question. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia used to be a public central bank and a public commercial bank, and it was, re, uh, it was um, taken back over over the years, but it was originally run by Dennis Miller and created for the purpose of funding many, many great things. So why do we have private banking instead of, of or at least uh, a, we need a competitive model when it comes to public and private banking, as I spoke before. We need that balance. So, Ellen, can you explain what the Commonwealth Bank of Australia used to be, how it used to run, and how we might be able to use that model in our current day and age? Uh, right. So it was created a bit before the Federal Reserve in 1912 was the way I had it. <laughs> I think you mentioned an earlier date. So anyway, um, and Dennis Miller was the governor of the bank. They, the bankers were care careful to appoint a banker because uh, they wanted to make sure that they kept control of the system. But uh, when the banks went to the, Dennis Miller and said, well, you're, you'll need to borrow from us to capitalize your bank and to, for liquidity, um, he, because he was a banker and he knew how banking works and he knew that banks just create the money they lend, he said, no, I think we'll just uh, create the money on our books. And, and he did and financed all sorts of businesses, rebuilt the country, you know, d different infrastructure across the country and funded Australia's participation in World War I. The mistake he made was to go to the city of London after World War I and uh, brag about being able to fund all these things without being dependent on loans from, um, from abroad or from England specifically. 
And that was not the purpose. From their point of view, they were attempting to recapture their colonial, the colonies through debt that they had lost through, you know, revolutions everywhere. Um, so the, Dennis and Miller died suddenly after that, uh, rather suspiciously, although I haven't really written any, or sorry, seen any uh, conspiracy theories about it, but it looked a bit suspicious to me. And then the Bank of England came in with this new model where it would be controlled by a board instead of one governor, and they basically took control. So after that, um, th that the whole central banking model came, came up after that, where the Bank of England was supposed to be the head of this pyramid, and the, bank, the other central banks would be under it, and they would borrow from the Bank of England. Uh, but after World War I, the Bank of England was a bit, or England itself was a bit impoverished, and so they spread it out and moved into the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, uh, and then we have the whole history of the BIS from then, from there, and in the 1970s, there was the Basel Committee, which basically, the theory was that we, we had, at that point, we had stagflation, where Prices were going up, but um, productivity wasn't. And so this was blamed on governments printing the money. But in fact, that wasn't really what it was. It was really cost-push inflation, including largely from the cost of oil, which quadrupled. Well, it's a long story, but I've written all that. But anyway, so they imposed this new rule where uh, banks, governments were not supposed to borrow from their own central bank or not you know, issue money directly or issue it by borrowing it directly, but that they were supposed to bar borrow on the open market, which meant they had to sell their bonds through the banks. So the banks got their cuts, and, um, and now you have this separation between even the central bank and the government. So even though they're supposedly one entity, they're really not, and the central bank doesn't just hand the money over to the government if, as it would if it were what used to be called a national bank. Um, it lends the money to the government or it sells, it either lends or sells the money to banks. That's where most of Federal Reserve reserves go, which is the new money and the, uh, the money that's newly created. And uh, it stays on the reserve, well, this that, that gets a bit complicated again. But anyway, that's where, that's where our system came from. And it's not governments issuing the money, but it should be. Uh, the American colonists issued the money directly. It was a brilliant new model in their day and allowed them to be very productive uh, in a wilderness. I and mean, people were amazed at how well the colonies did. And Australia, of course, has done very, did very well originally with that system. Abraham Lincoln, just issued the money for uh, the Civil War uh, and built the Continental Railroad, which actually turned a big profit for the government at the same time. And it did not create inflation and um, connected both ends of the country together. You know, it's just an amazing piece of infrastructure. So we need to do that as well. We, we need all kinds of infrastructure. We could just issue the money and build it. And, I would argue it would pay for itself in the same way, but um, you know, it takes a lot. It's hard to persuade politicians of that. 
Well, it shouldn't be hard to persuade politicians because they're meant to be enacting on the will and the needs and the interests of the people, not on big banks, not on big monopolies, not on big money. So if we don't have politicians who are prepared to um, have you know, a proper discourse about these issues, then what have we got them elected there in the first place? Plain and simple. Now, um, basically what you've just described there is the Reserve Bank of Australia is not um, is not a part of the, it's not a central, uh, a national central bank as the Commonwealth Bank of Australia used to be. And they say it's part of the Australian government infrastructure, but there's this intermediate thing where there is a cut being taken from the creation of money by the private banking market. So if we remove, remove that little bit, then we can create a, the Reserve Bank of Australia would more or less be a national um, public central bank as it, as it bloody well should be. And then, the, then basically the government is just loaning money to itself. Is that the sort of, is, is that a, the picture that you're trying to create there? Right. And in fact, if, if you issue money to yourself and it's interest free and you don't, and you never collect on it, if you, you keep rolling it over indefinitely, which is what happens with the federal debt. We have a $22 trillion federal debt. There is absolutely no way that this debt is ever going to get paid off. What gets paid year after year is the interest. And at the rate we're going, it is um, thought that we'll be paying a trillion dollars annually just in interest. In a decade, we'll be paying a trillion dollars annually on our federal debt just in interest. So you could eliminate the interest by um, lending directly from your central bank. And that's what Japan has done. The Bank of Japan now owns 40% of the government's debt, and they're very proud of that. <laughs> And it's working fine. They, they still only have a very low inflation rate that did not cause inflation, although there's no logical reason why it should. Um, so the interest goes back to the government then. That's the way our system works too, that uh, the Federal Reserve rebates its profits to the government after deducting its costs. So we could do that, but the more, but, and then just keep rolling over the actual principle. But what they do, they, allege what they did with quantitative easing was that they said that this was an emergency measure. And so they, the theory was that they would sell the, loan, the debt back to the market when times were, when they were trying to normalize the market, which is what they're doing or did up till um, just recently, they've stopped selling it back into the market because it turned out to be a disaster as many people predicted, including me. I mean, if you well, they were raising interest rates and selling money in, or selling debt into the market. So, by selling debt back, they are shrinking the money supply because they are pulling money out and the debt goes into the debt holders or sorry to the bondholders. Um, and by re raising interest rates, that was supposed to also shrink the money supply. But we have no need for shrinking the money supply. We don't. They're still having struggling to try to hit their two percent inflation rate. So you shrink the money supply by driving interest rates up, of course, you're going to make borrowing more expensive, which has put businesses particularly, that's the one they were really worried about, that the businesses are right at peak debt. I mean, they're ready to topple over, which could drive us right into another recession or depression like we had um, 10 years ago. It's almost like the central banking cartels or whoever these money makers have been over the years, it's almost like they've checkmated themselves because they've created a system where money is literally created out of nothing. And we're like, well, why are you, you are, why are you in control of this system where money is created out of nothing? 
Why isn't this system in the hands of the public so that it cares for the needs and the services of the community, not you and your multi-trillion dollar buddy mates and all the rest of, of what your system is? Why aren't we doing this for ourselves? So yes, we're in a situation right now where there is a lot of debt owed to the private market, including by the governments. It is, has been exposed that government bonds are more, more or less a subtle form of corporate welfare and that needs to go absolutely so there needs to be a process essentially where the government if we want to do this smoothly essentially because we're going this way where are we going to go this way via collapse or are we going to go this way via a smooth transition there is a lot of private debt that is owed to these banking and and other just general enterprises private enterprises and whatnot and your local grandma who is uh, invested in government bonds or whatever it may be um, and so uh, to do that, I guess we need to start, stop issuing private de uh, debt to the private market for starters from a government point of view. And then we need to start generating money through public banking infrastructure. Now we could do that through just a national public bank and create the, this currency that way, or which I think is a better approach. And I know that you've written about this Ellen a lot that we need to create local public banking networks because if we do it then the creation of that money is locally managed and therefore we have a decentralized system so it actually meets the needs of some of the the, the a lot of people within the say the truth and freedom network who are over um, the government control over the minds and the the behavior of the people they want individual freedom and localization at the forefront of this discussion. And a way to ensure that individual freedom is met is by putting the power back in the hands of the communities through not just local public banking networks, but also uh, localized food and resource systems, including doing it properly to care for the environment, such as polycultural models, such as permaculture, as well as hemp, and, and basically creating safe, environmentally friendly uh, products, plastics, fuels, energy, building materials, a whole ton of stuff using plants such as hemp, an amazing, amazing resource. But I know I'm going off track. I'm just, I just wanted to chuck that in there because it's so important to me, Ellen. Local public banking networks and a decentralized system. Is that, do you think, the right way to go about this? Yes. And, you know, money reformers have been talking about this for probably 100 years, but the banks have just denied it. And it was very hard to break through into the major media. Um, social credits, creditors have been talking about it since before 1920. Um, but the Bank of England, I think, was kind of forced into acknowledging that that's how money was created by, it has come up more and more. I mean, like I wrote Web of Debt actually in 2007, not that I claim credit, but positive money in England has done a great job of, I mean, they've had actual hearings, right, in Parliament on the, where money comes from and, they, you know, get it, we've, we've all gotten videos out there and it's just people are so much more aware now, plus the fact that we had this big collapse in 2008, so nobody trusts the, the, uh, the government or the central bank anymore, whereas it, they, it used to be kind of, you know, a temp, the temple, <laughs> the temple of the Fed, and now everybody's very skeptical and they, so we're now peering into it and seeing what's going on, but it, it is very complicated. I, my last article that I wrote, I, I went into the repo market and how that crashed the 2008 economy and I got some pushback that it was too wonky, but it's so complicated. I mean, you can't do it in a, 
you just can't do it in a four-page article. It's really got to be in a book where you go step by step by step. Yes, yeah, so the scam has been exposed, Ellen, right? It's all out on the table where the sunlight is providing the disinfectant that, it, that our system needs. We have exposed the scam. Money and banking has been stolen from us. It is created out of nothing. I know a lot of people on the right want to go back to a gold standard or some sort of pressure met, uh, pre, uh, precious metal standard. I believe that's just another faith-based system in and of itself. Um, all money, in fact, is a faith-based system. Why should we go back to a, a metal standard which has a limiting capacity in terms of how we operationalize our money and banking system? That does not make sense to me. I certainly am on board for decentralized blockchain technologies or other technologies that do, such as some cryptocurrency markets, they could be incorporated into this system somehow, especially the blockchain decentralized technology. That's a fantastic approach. But I certainly don't want to go back to a, a, a gold standard. I don't see the value in that. So I'll get your thoughts on that. But also, um, how, in what ways has local public banking been implemented right now in our current day and age? Are there any good examples that we might be able to go to to understand how um, effective and, uh, and valuable it is for our communities? Uh, yes, on, um, on digital currencies and that, that whole subject, I just finished a book on that called Banking on the People. So I did go step by step into all this wonky stuff and, and how we, what the alternatives are for fixing it or proposals are and which would work and which wouldn't. And I agree that gold is not going to work. That didn't, I mean, we were on a gold standard for centuries and it, it always resulted in booms and busts and booms and busts because there's a limited amount of gold. And so, I mean, you could see it really clearly if you go back to actually using gold coins, if that was the only thing available and you lend out 10 coins and you want 11 coins back, obviously you're going to wind up with somebody's going to, going to wind up in default and then they're going to wind up in debt slavery. And you know, the system just can't be sustained. Um, now that we get around it and all these, with all this slate of hand, and that's what, that's what I wrote about the repo market is, was a big issue in 2008. And it's still a big issue. It's, I mean, it's gonna, it could well collapse again, but I won't try to get into that, but yeah. So we do have good models uh, in the U S we have one, we only have one publicly owned bank and that's the bank of North Dakota or state owned bank. Bank of North Dakota, but it's been around for a hundred years. Uh, the Wall Street Journal also had an article about it in 2014 that said that um, the Bank of North Dakota is more profitable than J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, and the reason is just its business model that they have lower costs. They don't have high-paid CEOs, and um, they don't have shareholders sucking out profits. They don't have to have a lot of branches because they actually partner with the local banks. So the local banks are acting sort of as the front office and the Bank of North Dakota is more like a banker's bank where they're big to put 98% of their deposits come from the state itself and from public entities. So they take that money and use it as deposits and then leverage it into local, below market loans into the community. And they, if, the, if a local bank needs help, like they, it's a loan that they couldn't take themselves, then the Bank of North Dakota will step in with this cheap liquidity and help them with it. So it's a, it's a very viable model, but it, was, it wasn't really much known, I think, until I started writing about it in uh, 
2008, I knew they were the only state that had their own bank, so I was watching it. And it turned out they were the only state that escaped the credit crisis. Like they never went into the, into the red and they had the lowest unemployment rate in the country, the lowest default rate, the lowest foreclosure rate. So there was, there was clearly something about the state that was doing really well. I mean, some people have called it, said it was due to oil. They do have oil, but the oil boom didn't really hit in North Dakota until 2010. And they were already reporting record profits and they just reported even when we had an oil bust, you know, several years ago, I think it was like right after the 2014. And although the government itself was, you know, struggling, the Bank of North Dakota year after year after year reported record profits, higher profits than the year before. So the bank model is an excellent model. And, but then globally, we have things like the Sparkassen banks in Germany, which are, those are local, banks that take individual deposits and they mostly cater to local businesses. I mean, they're very local. They're not allowed to lend outside their local community. And then they, they sort of share resources and um, they, the land is bank, is, I can't say that right, but anyway, there's, there are bigger banks that are part of their system. Anyway, they, it's due to the Sparkasm banks and KFW, which is a, public development bank that uh, they have become the leader in renewable energies in the, in the world. That was, that was how they, so these are loans that um, normal commercial banks are afraid to make because they don't want to venture into something new and something that might be risky, but a public bank will do it. So anyway, that's worked out very well for them. China has 80% of their banks are publicly owned and you know, you can't question that their economy is, I mean, it's amazing what they've done in the last 20 years. They've just, they had 10% growth every year, right up till through 2008. I mean, it's slowed up now because they're, the whole global market is going down, but they're still, I think at 7% or something, they're still doing really well. Um, so anyway, there are many models, some of them not as good as others, you know, some are, the public banks did have a reputation for being sort of um, corrupt, like in the 20th century when you couldn't really track things like you can now, but now we have the potential for total transparency and total accountability. So if you baked into these banks right into their charters that they have to do certain things and they have to serve the public interest, then, and if you can see their books and you can see when they haven't done that, you can either get rid of the politicians that, um, you know, that were responsible or get rid of the people running the bank that were responsible. Anyway, they, we, we don't have any leverage over private banks, even if we know they're doing corrupt things, what can we, or if we know they're not serving the, the local community, what can we do about it? They don't have any mandate to serve the local community. Their mandate is to make short-term profits for their shareholders and that's it and in fact if they had a choice between like a big um five billion dollar some sort of hedge fund loan and a fifty thousand dollar small business loan they will always take the hedge fund loan because it's much you know it's the same amount of work to check and see that <laughs> they probably already know the client they know that the client's a good pay um, so it's a less work to do the $5 billion loan. They're going to make more money off it. Um, even though the 
little $50,000 loan for the business was a perfectly good loan. I mean, that's the type of, type of loan that the Sparkasm banks would make because that's, that's what they do. That's their specialty. So it's quite profitable to do those little loans. But the big banks are required to make big loans for big profits because, because of their shareholder model. I just want to reiterate what I said leading into the interview is that we need a balance between the public and private spectrum, between the left and right spectrum. That's just reality. That's how reality works in general and needs to be applied on all levels in our personal life and in our social system design. So when, the, when Ellen spoke around uh, China and there's a fears around communism, around public banking and all the rest of it, I think you really um, dispelled those fears quite simply is when you design anything, of course it can be corrupted. You need to encode particular safeguards and mechanisms to ensure the corruption isn't, isn't um, a part of that particular model. And so having the accountability and the transparency, maybe incorporating blockchain technologies, decentralized accounting ledger technologies into public banks is an absolute, absolutely important uh, strategy to make sure they cannot be corrupted. But that's the same with government, it's the same with corporations, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Anything can be corrupted, um, but it can be circumnavigated through proper design. Now, what I want to uh, just reiterate is something that uh, Ellen spoke about the media. That is, in Australia, two-thirds of Australians don't trust the government and the media. Two-thirds. That is a huge amount of people who don't have trust in, and that this these figures came from the Edelman uh, trust barometer survey in 2018. It's consistent. We do not trust the government or the media. And why the media? Because these sorts of meta narratives, they will tell you these journalists who a lot are quite authentic in, I'm sure, they're just brainwashed and indoctrinated a lot of the majority of people. They might be wanting to do you know, a service for their Australian community. However, the meta narratives, the big picture stuff like money and banking, like how the system has been scanned, is incorporated because it's, guess what? The media is run by multi-billionaires who will stand to lose if this information gets out to society. So it takes the little people like me, buddy, sitting behind my computer in my office trying to get this information out there. The media, you've been called out. You need to start talking about these sorts of things very, very quickly if we want to move forward in an honourable fashion for our Australian communities. But ultimately what I'm getting at is the narrative is shifting very deeply on all these matters. And we need to try and get to the cutting edge of where we're going because the Australians are very susceptible to a housing market crash at the moment and our own crash. We did not go through this in 2008. We are very vulnerable right now when it comes to this interconnected global banking and monetary system and any hiccup in bloody Germany or it doesn't matter where, we are going to suffer dramatically. And so what we need to do is safeguard ourselves against any national or global monetary bloody meltdowns or even just hiccups. And how we safeguard ourselves is localization. Localization, as I mentioned before, food and resource creation, um, using the public postal network. I'm not sure if you've heard about this, Ellen, but using the Australia Post Network or the USPS, the US Postal Service, um, to incorporate. Oh, and actually, you, of course you have, because you have written about banking being incorporated within the Postal Service Network, which I read just recently. But we could also incorporate communication infrastructure into those, that public postal network. 
The reason being we need software and hardware publicly owned is because we've, we've got a real serious issue around censorship versus free speech right now. The big tech from Silicon Valley are censoring um, uh, particular ideological viewpoints. And the government are doing the, sorry, not the government, the people who have hijacked our bloody governments are uh, uh, enforcing this sort of uh, censorship. Absolutely um, disgraceful for the, uh, for the people of Australia and the world. But not only that, the dinosaur ma mainstream media, they, of course, uh, um, have been censoring these meta-narratives that I talked about earlier for a long, long time. So we've got a very poorly informed Australian public. Hence the need to transition the Australia Post Network to the digital age. It was originally designed to ensure that uh, the freedom and free flow of information could occur and that if there was any dictatorship type government happening, the people have still got a mechanism to communicate with each other through their postal network to make sure that they stop any, you know, sort of issues arising in the government, right? That's what it was originally, that's part of its original mandate. And it needs to be um, transitioned to the digital, digital age to make sure that we can circumnavigate censorship and we have the ability to communicate freely with each other through our own software packages and hardware packages. So I know all that's a mouthful. Ellen, thank you for staying with me through all that. We need to localise. We need to safeguard ourselves against this crazy scam, this money and banking scam that's on a global scale right now. We need to protect ourselves from that through the, all those localization mechanisms I just spoke of. How do you see us protecting ourselves from what's going on in the global, um, this global debt bubble, this, the, the big, I think they call it the, um, the meta bubble, bubble, the mega bubble. But the, how do we protect ourselves through not just the localization mechanisms, but also the money supply? What would you say the, the smartest thing the people of Australia should demand from their government in terms of Australia National Bank um, or an Australian National Bank or the ANB, which I've, I've sort of been calling it lately, um, but also local public banking networks, also this uh, MMT, sovereign monetary currency system that we could potentially design. Lay out your wisdom for us, Ellen, because I want to make sure that, uh, that we really um, start circulating this through the Australian community. Well, I love your point about that the post office was originally de designed for free speech or for communication. I, I'll write about that. <laughs> That's a good topic for an article. Um, yeah, so, so we've had postal banks in, in the U.S. We had a postal bank from 1911 to 1967. So the postal bank system, the public, in other words, you call it a postal, and people think that's like something different from a bank. But it was a national public banking system, which we had for all those years. Uh, and it was very popular in the 1930s when all the private banks were going bankrupt. So people rushed to the postal banking system because it was backed by the government. It paid 2% interest, which was a very good return at the time. And, um, and the private banks were, you know, very risky. But the government, instead, of course, they were the big bank lobbyists leaning on them. Instead of propping up the postal bank, or let's just call it the public banking system that we then had, they actually capped the public banking system so that they couldn't raise their interest rates, that they backed the private banks with FDIC insurance. So we, the people, suddenly were on the hook for the deposits of private banks that could then, had no obligation to use that power of taking in deposits and leveraging them into loans. They had no obligation to use that 
in the public interest where the public system obviously would have. Um, and we, so we had to back their defaults and, they, and, and so that's where we are today. So in 1967, the postal banks were discontinued because they were the, at that point, they were no longer competitive with the private banks, which did raise the interest rates they were paying to depositors and the postal banks couldn't, couldn't do it. And they weren't allowed to make big business type loans. So anyway, all the way along, we've been hamstrung by big lobbyists that, as you say, it's not the government, it's not our government, and no longer is our government. It's a government run by big business and big money. And so the real challenge is how do we get it back? But I, but I would say what we need is a, a, a public banking system at all levels. We need to turn the Federal Reserve into a true public utility which means we need to change the way it is governed. You need to change the law on the way it is governed. Our Federal Reserve, we have 12 Federal Reserve branches, all of which are 100% owned by the banks in their district. And they obviously had the biggest voice in how monetary policy is done. The uh, Federal Open Market Committee meets behind closed doors and the heads of, five, five heads of the banks of these privately owned banks are, um, are on the committee along with seven um, people from the federal government. So anyway, they have a very strong voice and who knows what happens behind closed doors. So we need to get all that out in the public and uh, we need to have the public represented on, represented on those boards. So if you had a public bank, public central bank actually doing quantitative easing in a different way, the way they did it so far, the money only went to the reserve accounts of banks. And then at the same time, the Federal Reserve dropped interest rates almost to zero. So both the banks and their big corporate um, customers could make, could borrow very cheaply. So they were the ones that bought up all the assets, they bought the stocks, they bought the houses, drove up the price, inflated the prices of assets and the money did not get into the real, real economy, the productive economy where people work, where people get paid, where people get the money to pay off their loans, and um, of course, where they shop. So if we had a central bank that was mandated to serve the public interest by such things as perhaps a national dividend, also known as the universal basic income, or um, building infrastructure or education. I mean, there are many things we could do in the public interest in the same way that they bailed out the banks. We could bail out the public, get some money out there in people's pockets. So you'd, ha you'd have a federal level public bank, state level public banks that could be similar to like KFW and the infrastructure banks that, um, that focus on infrastructure and business loans, that type of thing. And then you could have the postal bank, postal banking system to take individual deposits, make individual loans. I would say backed by the, by the central bank because you need that source of liquidity. To, uh, and there are actually some academic proposals to that effect right now that, that we, we should all be able to bank at the central bank. In other words, we all should be able to have it have an account there. Right now, the banks are getting 2.4% interest on their federal reserve, on their reserves, which are their deposits. And we're getting 0.1% on average, so almost nothing. 
So we the people could be participating in that system. Anyway, I have to, so I just finished a book on that whole subject called the Baking on the People where, you know, I go through the whole thing step by step and look at all the alternatives and make some proposals. Excellent. So if I was to summarize it like this, the government needs to stop lending out um, to the private market. So it's got private debt, needs to stop that completely, create an Australian National Bank, um, uh, merge the Reserve Bank of Australia with the Australian National Bank instead of having this monetary policy process focus on fiscal policy process maybe and then go to the state levels have state banks that manage the state economies um, and have the local public banking which you might do through the postal network um, but also you could create proper institutions I guess as well um, make it competitive within the market as well to make sure that the banking system is kept honest and all of the creation um, all that all the money that comes from money creation is managed locally and reinvested within community infrastructure, social programs, and also to make sure our societies uh, are serviced properly, um, education, health, um, but also um, to, to, to resolve these deep socioeconomic issues that we have like homelessness, entrenched poverty, drug addiction, uh, domestic violence, ma mass massive amounts of sickness, stress, sadness, and sickness throughout our society. We've got a lot of problems. We've got to sort these out. Is that the general model that we should be thinking about? Right. I didn't quite hear. You said at the beginning that not making private loans. I, I didn't quite follow who you were saying. So instead of the government owing um, money to private stakeholders. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yes. Yes, agreed. Totally. Um, right. Sorry. <laughs> My train of thought. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> no, that's okay. So what I was, is that, is, is that more or less a good summary for what Australia should do to protect ourselves from this global crap that's going on um, in terms of the scamming and start re-empowering um, the people and the communities to take care of themselves and manage their own affairs? Right. Okay. I just remember what I was going to say. So, uh, the, so the focus has been on regulating the banks, you know, Glass, reimposing Glass Steagall, et cetera. Um, but that hasn't worked, and it, they always manage to get around it. They can come up with uh, things like the repo market or whatever that they can come up with things faster, their, their engineered products faster than, than politicians who are very slow can get around to regulating. But if you set up a public system, so, so that my argument would be set up a, a better mousetrap and just let it work and let the private banks do their thing. If you want to bank at a private bank, that's perfectly fine. But the public bank is going to be safer and it's going to give you a better interest rate. So the, the private bank system would just fade by attrition, it seems to me. Or you could make private banks, you know, offer them to be part of the public system. All they have to do is make their books public and you know they instead of having private shareholders they, they could uh, anyway it seems to me that we need to focus on the better model and just work to develop that model and instead of trying to regulate a bad model that if you tweak it one way then you then you do something that hurts another area I mean you can't tell what what effect your actions are going to have so better to just to start with some local public banks. That's what we're trying to do in the U.S. 
that would start small just to prove the model when you can see that they are profitable and that they're um, you know, doing, doing good things for the local community, then expand and move more money into them and just gr gradually pr prove the whole system by the better mousetrap. Well, we might not have time for that, Ellen. You don't know when the next bloody uh, global financial meltdown is going to occur. Um, it's, whether, or not it's, whether or not it's orchestrated or not, we've got the solutions there. You're absolutely right, though. Um, of course, we need the separation of commercial and investment banking, which is the Glass-Steagall Act. In fact, there was a bill put into Parliament here in Australia just recently regarding that process. So that is on the table here in Australian politics. But ultimately, um, of course, people are going to want to bank with a public bank if they get better interest rates. But not only that, the money goes back into their communities and helps their fellow Australians. So you'd have to be, um, you know, just out in the in the in the bloody clouds not to want to do that which will make sure that these private banking industries and cartels are behaving honorably that'll keep them honest that'll keep that'll get them behaving in in better ways so ellen um thank you so much for your time today um if where can people follow your work and is there anything additional that you'd like to contribute to this conversation um well I, uh, sorry i had that no i forgot didn't tell you um, okay, I'll just, my website is ellenbrown.com and um, the Public Banking Institute is publicbankinginstitute.org. My three books on this subject are Web of Debt, Public Bank Solution, and my new one coming out is called Banking on the People. And I love how naturally happy and organic you are. Um, you, you, it's a, always a pleasure to interview <laughs> Ellen. Um, thank you so much for your time again today. And uh, I will uh, I look forward to our next time. Likewise. Thank you very much.